Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. As people were starting to loot from stores, it reminded me of the L.A. riots all over again. And the first thing I thought was spring into action, talk to the protesters and try to get them to stand down and not destroy their own community. And then from there, as I'm walking and talking with the protesters, that was when this large white officer looked at my shirt and he said, hey, man, do I get one of those hugs? And you pause in a moment like that because it's literally gunshots going off. There's tear gas in the air. People are choking. There's these flashbang devices. Everyone is running in different directions because some people were there just to destroy things. Some people were there with valid reasons for protest. And some were just knuckleheads. They're setting fires. They're breaking into fights. And so here I was as this officer asked this, and I saw it just as a moment of extending that olive branch of can we bridge the gap and create some peace between this white officer in Charlotte, North Carolina, and this black peace activist who ultimately just wants peace and to really get people together to talk about the issues rather than attacking one another. And so I hugged him. Hey, it's Light Watkins. We are back with another episode from the end of the tunnel. And if this is your first time tuning into the show, here is what you are in for. I interview luminaries, artists, philanthropists, athletes, creatives, basically anyone who's gone above and beyond to be the change they wish to see in the world. Sometimes they start movements or they create films or they write books that inspire people. And my guest this week is a motivational speaker and he's a peace activist popularly known as the Free Hugs Guy. His name is Ken Nwadike Jr., And Ken grew up in California during the L.A. riots that followed the Rodney King verdict. He and his four siblings and his single mom all lived in a series of homeless shelters throughout his childhood. And then a track coach changed Ken's life by inviting him to join the high school track team. Ken's first mile that he ever ran was four minutes and 17 seconds. And he saw running as a way out of homelessness. Later, Ken ended up volunteering to speak at homeless shelters and he started mentoring kids. And then they had an idea. What if we hosted a charity half marathon on Hollywood Boulevard to raise money for kids in homeless shelters? And even though he was rejected when he initially pitched the idea to the local law enforcement, they told him it was too expensive and they couldn't shut down Hollywood Boulevard. He persisted. And sure enough, they ended up raising a million dollars. Then Ken was inspired to raise money to compete in the Boston Marathon. But in order to run it, he needed to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And so he ran a trial marathon, but he came 11 seconds short. So he didn't make the cut. And then six days later, he ran another trial marathon. And this time he was about six seconds short. So he wasn't able to qualify for the Boston Marathon. 
but he ran two marathons in the process. Instead of throwing in the towel, though, Ken decided to still attend the Boston Marathon on the sidelines as a supporter, and he went to the mall and he got a Free Hugs t-shirt made up and a sign that said Free Hugs, and he stood there and he ended up hugging over a thousand marathon runners that day. And he ended up being featured on all of these news channels. And that's how he became known as the free hugs guy. Then Ken felt called to give those free hugs in conflict zones. And in the United States, there are no shortage of conflict zones. So Ken started going to these racially charged areas, usually after the cops had killed some innocent black person. And in one such area, it was a Black Lives Matter protest. Ken was wearing his free hugs T-shirt. And a white police officer in riot gear asked Ken for a hug. And he was conflicted because he had BLM on one side and he had all the cops standing on the other side. And there was all this tension. And Ken decided to give the cop a hug. And of course, the protesters became incensed. But that gave Ken an opportunity to bridge the divide between law enforcement and people who were seeking justice. And now that's what he does. Ken works tirelessly to de-escalate violence during times and in places of unrest. And when the drama goes down, when everybody else is running away, Ken is running towards the action. And when you hear about his motivation and his entire life story in this interview, it's quite fascinating how Ken has been able to make the impact that he's made in the world. And it's yet another example of how every single hardship that we face, almost without exception, will one day come into play when we eventually find our purpose. I cannot wait for you to hear Ken's full story in his own words. But before we get into the conversation, I do have a quick question for you. Have you ever meditated for over 100 days in a row? If not, are you up for the challenge? Because if you are, then you're invited to join my 108-day meditation challenge The 108-Day Challenge is a part of my Happiness Insiders online community, which teaches you practices like meditation for increasing happiness within. The way it works is you pay a $39 entry fee, and that gets you access to a seven-day meditation kickstart, which will teach you everything you need to meditate without guidance for at least 10 minutes a day, and you'll get daily prompts and accountability to help support you in your 108-day commitment. And by the end... Not only will you be a daily meditator, but you will be a part of a larger community of other daily meditators. It's like running one of those marathons that Ken ran with other meditators standing on the sidelines cheering you along each step of the way. And the best part is once you cross the finish line, your $39 entry fee will be credited back to you. We've got hundreds of people who've successfully gone through the challenge, and it's designed to help you accomplish what feels like a marathon to a lot of people, which is finally becoming a daily meditator. To get more information, go to thehappinessinsiders.com and let me help you take your inner practices to the next level. And now let's dive into the backstory of Ken NYDK Jr. and find out how exactly he became known as the free hugs guy. Brother Ken. That's me. What's up, man? It's, it's to reconnect. <laughs> to the, I know, man. It's been a, been a couple of years. Yeah. Year, literally, like a couple of years. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. I think, too, since the last time we were at Wonderlust. Uh, you so Wonderlust. And yeah. yeah. The three I think brothers. that was the one in, what was the last? Was it Atlanta? Was that the last one? We were, we were in Atlanta. Like, yeah. Which was, it's funny because I, 
prior to Atlanta, I felt like we were the only brothers at like this whole <laughs> this whole yoga festival. Yeah. But then in Atlanta, yeah. there was a lot of other black yogis and and people that are in that space, and so yeah. it's kind of cool to see that. Yeah, man. Well, I'm excited to dive into your story. I like to start off the conversations talking about childhood. Yeah. And from my little research, I know that you, I guess you were, you were born in Seattle, but then you guys moved to LA, to South Central LA. Well, actually I was born in LA and then we moved to Seattle and mm. then ended up back in, in LA. So when you think back to little Ken or Kenny or whatever <laughs> they called Kenny you back, back then, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember having a favorite toy or activity as, you know, maybe a six or seven year old? As little Kenny, yes. It took a long time for me to track down that toy again, but it's the it's a little tiny white Lamborghini Countach micro machine. You remember the micro machine? Like there was the commercial, the guy, he talks really fast. And then there were these tiny, tiny little cars. And it's literally as big as that, like as big as the nail on your thumb. Hmm. And it was my favorite toy from when I was a boy. And I think probably why I remember that toy so distinctly is because it was like the last toy that I hung onto when my parents separated. So you know mm-hmm. how you have kind of like those those pivotal things that you cling onto when you're going through a traumatic experience in your life. And so I remember just driving my little micro machine back and forth and that was how I zoned out. And so I just recently found it, not oh. the same toy, but tracked right. down a Lamborghini Countach micro machine. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. Would you play by yourself? I know you had siblings. What was the context of playing with that toy? Like, were you racing? Um, no, I would drive it on everybody and annoy them. <laughs> so I'd drive it around your neck. <laughs> I'd drive it up your shoulder. <laughs> so it was it, it kind of 
for myself, but I mean, my brother was cool with me doing that, but it used to annoy my sister. She's a year older than me. And so anybody has a little die cast car, the wheels that they drive on you are going to annoy you all the time. But I just remember doing that often to my sister and her hating that thing. But yeah, definitely used to play with my siblings with it, but it was something that I cherished. And I think that's what led to my love for Lamborghinis. I know a lot of people grow up and they like Lamborghinis because they're fast or they're expensive. But for me, I just happened to my first toy car that I can remember was a Lamborghini Countach <laughs> micro machine. When did you guys live or start living in the homeless shelters? Because that's a yeah. part of your, that's a key part of your story in South Central LA. Totally. I guess it was as early as you can remember, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we were living in Seattle, Washington at the time because my dad had gotten into some trouble with the law. And so we moved there. I think we briefly went to Canada for a little bit just because he was trying to figure out, well, where do you go to beat whatever case it was that he was facing? And so he, we were in Canada for a little bit. He didn't really like it there. So we came back down to Seattle. We were staying there. And then the police raid happened. And during that police raid, that's what led to that separation of my parents, because I think my mom was like, you know, with five kids, I can't be going through living with a husband who's probably going to be going in and out of jail. And, and I feel like my dad was doing the things that he was doing to try to make ends meet for having five kids. And and I could understand that. Now as a father of five myself and I'm his junior, he was Ken. Do what you got to do. You yeah. do. You do what you got to do. I try to do it the most legal way possible, but any man knows before you're going to let your kids starve, you're going to do whatever you have to do to provide for them. And and fortunately, I've been really blessed to be able to take care of myself and my family, but I'm sure for my dad being he came from Nigeria in 79. So in the mm. early 80s, you know, he was still in the process of educating himself and now started this family here in America and just trying to learn the ropes. And I think that's probably what got him into some trouble because when I met him again, when I was 18, he wasn't a bad guy. But back then, all I knew was our home was raided. My dad got hauled off to jail. And my mom, she moved to South Central LA because that was where she knew people were in LA. And so from there, that's what got us to the homeless shelters. And an interesting fact too, and I, I guess people who have stayed in shelters would understand this. My mom being a single mother, she deliberately would try to get us into the battered women's shelters because the conditions there were a lot cleaner. You didn't have like homeless men coming from off the street. She was concerned about the safety of my sister and my brothers and I. And so it made it easier for her to say that she was being abused so that she could be just around other women in the shelter with their children. And so it's like little things like that that my mom did. I'm like, man, she was really looking out. And you don't understand those things until you get older. And it's like, yeah, how come I never saw male homeless dudes from off the street in this shelter? It was always clean and, and nicely kept. And you were about 10 years old at the time. So what was a day in the life like at 10 years old? Yeah, back staying then, at the shelter. Yeah, it was really just about making friends in there because we were in and out for a number of years. So a lot of times it was just how do you adjust into school when you're coming from the shelter, right? Like we were always taking public transportation. So being bused in LA to 
whatever schools we were going to, like yeah, back then elementary school, and that carried on up into middle school. You were like the man of the quote house, right? So you had to take care of your siblings, probably make sure they were dressed and ready to go, make sure they yeah. had been dropped off at the right places and picked up and all that. That was elementary all the way up until the point when I finally left for college, like my younger siblings, especially my brothers, it was making sure that they got to school. In the beginning, it was walking them to school. Eventually, when I could drive, then it was driving them to school. But yeah, there was always that responsibility on me because my mom being a single mother with five kids, obviously, she's out trying to find work to get us out of the homeless shelter. And that's right. not easy. Again, when you're an immigrant from Nigeria, who got here in 79. My sister was born in 80. I was born in 81, you know? And so it's like they immediately started a family upon arriving here and then found out, hey, America's not as easy as people make it seem to get by. And so they had to quickly educate themselves, quickly figure out how to work and drive and, and everything else, you know, to create a better life for us. And I thank God I wasn't born. Well, I, I can't say that. I would say I, I was going to say I could thank God I wasn't born in Nigeria. But I feel like if you were born there, you adjust to that as well. You know, but I feel like a lot of the opportunities that have been given to me being born and raised here in the United States has felt like a blessing. Because when I hear about the struggles that people are experiencing in Nigeria, it's like, man, I'm glad my parents did whatever they could to get us here to raise their five kids. Well, the other thing is that Nigerians, and I think a lot of times West Africans in general, have a sense of pride that you don't find, uh, you, or at least at that time, that wasn't as prevalent with African-Americans. It's interesting because you guys landed right in the midst of all of the Rodney King controversy and yeah. the LA riots and all that. And I'm wondering... Obviously, you would not have known how your mom was processing that personally at the mm -hmm. time, 10 years old. But maybe in hindsight, looking back, like what was that conversation around a Nigerian native mm. when you guys were dealing with or, or witnessing all of that? Yeah, no, it's it's interesting that you cued that up with the pride portion, because I could tell you and I'm sure you're you're aware of that, because as Nigerian-Americans, uh, my my mom always she would raise us to say, you know, like, even though we're growing up in some really rough parts of Los Angeles, she's like, I want you guys to get educated. I want you guys to find work and opportunities. And she was very particular about who we would hang out with. And I think that was that sense of pride, like you have to be better. And so when our school friends were out looting and even the kids at the shelter were out looting. She made sure we never went out there and kids were coming back with like, you remember the starter jackets that people used to wear back then with the sports teams on them. Everybody's coming into the shelter wearing those. I wanted one of those starter jackets so bad. And everyone was just going to the Slauson swap meet and taking them. And I'm like, mom, I could finally <laughs> go and get a, um, a starter jacket for free. And she's like, no, we're going to be better than that. I wanted a pair of Patrick Ewing's. I wanted a pair of Jordan's. I could finally get them now. And my mom's mm -hmm. like, no, we're not going to do that. And so that sense of pride that you speak of in, in being African, I think that was part of that. Like, no, you're not going to go out and do something illegal or represent our family in a dishonorable way. And so that was what led to her really starting to teach us about the work of Dr. King. And she's like, look, because there's an uprising going on out there, there's ways that you can have influence 
even during those things. And so our early lessons about peacekeepers like that, that became very fascinating because it's like, on one hand, do I go out and just start looting from the stores with my boys in the shelter or some of my buddies in school? They're every day, like hitting us up, like, look, I got this. I got a new Nintendo system. Like, and it's like, yeah, you want to go out there and do that. But instead, just being brought up in a different way, I think that's what led to the early changing the path of my life and wanting to, or not even, I don't think I could say I wanted to be a peacekeeper at that point, but I had a different stance on when things like that were happening. I think my mom really put a stamp that, hey, we're not going to carry ourselves like that in the midst of, of chaos. We're going to do better. How closely were you guarding this shelter life? Was it like a closely guarded secret? Oh, big time, or would, you, would you reveal it to anyone? Any close friends? Anybody up? know? Heck yeah. no, no one knew that. No way, man. <laughs> no. Coming up through middle school, it was already difficult being the poor kid, you know? Like my brothers and I, we used to share clothes, like literally having to rotate clothes. Like I'll wear it on Monday. Don't wear it on Tuesday because people will notice. So you should wear it on Wednesday. And, you know, like that's how homeless we were trading off clothes because that was all, all we had, you know? And so when you're already trying to guard that sort of stuff, the last thing you needed was for it to get out that, hey, they're staying in the Salvation Army shelter downtown, or they're staying at the Gramercy place, women's shelter over there. And it's like, nah, man, you can't have that get out there. So yes, that was very closely guarded. The only people who knew were also people who lived in the shelter. You know, those were our friends that lived there. And people don't know, like there's homeless camp. Like we go off to camp with other homeless kids and we talk about the things that we were going through at the time. So it's like you have your homeless friends and then you have your regular friends in, in school. And I remember back then, my friends from camp, we all really leaned on each other and wished the best for each other because we knew what we were going through. You know, there were kids that were being abused there and we knew about it. Sometimes you hear what's going on and, and you're just aware of what other people's circumstances were like. And so I always say, you know, I was, I was blessed to be homeless with my mom there, right? And some kids, that wasn't the case for them. They were just literally on their own. And wow. I don't know what that life could have been like. Did you remember anybody coming in role model wise while you were a kid in a homeless shelter to kind of show you what the possibilities were and how to get out? Absolutely. And that's what actually has led to what is still till today, my favorite book of all time. It's, no way. Yeah. The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Oh, wow. It's like it's literally my favorite book of all time. And it's because there was a guy who you could tell didn't have to come down to the shelter and spend his time there, but he would come down there literally every week. And we would see him when he gets to the little sign-in booth, the check-in booth. And we were always looking forward to story time with him. And he mm. would come and he would just sit down there in like the, the main floor of the shelter and read to us. And it's interesting because there were all of these other activities you could have done while you were at the shelter. You could play on the playground. You could go to like arts and crafts or whatever. But when it came time for this dude to come and read to us, it was like, we all needed that. And I understood back then what it was helping us do. It was a form of escape. And especially because this book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I don't know if you've read the story, but as the kids, they're running around this mansion and then they find this big closet in the house mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they go into the closet 
I believe it was Edmund who went in first and he heard his siblings trying to find him during this hide and seek game, kept on pushing back further. And before it was getting colder and colder. And I'm sitting there as I'm hearing this story, like, yo, (laughs) this is crazy. Right. And so he goes further into the closet. All of a sudden he's in this whole new world. And so I remember just like during that whole period, it maybe took about a month or so to, because he would only read a little bit and then he'd have to leave and then come back a few days later. But people like that, man, they, they really inspired me so much because it's like, he didn't have to come down there and do that. He definitely was not homeless. Like he was just volunteering his own time and he was probably in his twenties and he would come down there and do that for us. And I don't know if maybe he came from the shelters early on. And so he understood what we were going through mentally, emotionally, and just wanted to help out, but still till today. And I'll be 40 years old next month. And if anyone asks, what's your favorite book? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, hands down, <laughs> because it's one book that really came to life for me at a really difficult time. I got to read that to my kids. I think, you know, Watching the movie is one thing, but actually like reading the story or listening to the story being told can be really special for them as well. So I have Mm. the book in the house, but I got to read it to them. Talk about the coach who noticed that you always were walking around looking down and and what, what that relationship gave to you. Absolutely. So coming up through the shelters, obviously throughout elementary school, middle school, there was always that struggle with fitting in, you know, like I didn't really hang out with the other kids. I would only hang out with my brother who was in high school at the same time that I was in in high school. And whenever we didn't see past each other in the halls or have the same class, usually we would just kind of be on our own. He was a little bit more outgoing because he was a, a bodybuilder back then. And one year I had asked for a weight set for my birthday and my mom had got it for me. And my little brother just abused this weight set, got yoked up. <laughs> so he, he had a lot of attention back then early on. Whereas me, I was always the skinny, scrawny kid. So I just kept to myself. And one day as I was walking through the halls, there was a track coach there at my high school. We had moved on to San Diego by then. And we were staying in the Gramercy or no, the Salvation Army shelter downtown, like across the street from the mall. And as I was walking through the halls, this coach, he stopped me and he's like, how come every time I I walk past you, you're looking down at, at the ground, you should look up. And, you know, and I had explained to him how it's like, it's just easier that way, man. I spent so many years throughout middle school, elementary school, people talking smack. And so it's just easy to tune it out, right? Like if I'm looking down at the ground, I don't even have to, you know how kids back then, they used to give that little up, down look at you. Like they, like real quick, they'll size you up from your shoes and up and then have a nasty look that they give with that. I hated that look because I could just tell they're judging me for my shoes, my clothes, everything else. So it was easier to tune it out. And when this coach noticed that, then he invited me to come out and join the track team. And joining that track team, it changed my life, man. Like I, I went from going out on these training runs with them and not wanting to let them down because I was like, man, I finally have friends now. It's like once you join a sport or extracurricular activity in school, all of the other stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you thought you were a nerd or the homeless kid or the jock, whatever it is, that activity, it melds you guys all together. Now you're all one unit. And track did that for me. It, I didn't feel homeless when I was out with the track guys. Your mom said to you, we can't afford this. So what yeah. made you take that leap of faith? Yeah. So I always looked at things 
with foresight, feeling like, well, although when I brought it up to her, I went to the shelter, back to the shelter after I had spoken to Coach Johnson and I had let her know, I really want to join the track team. The coach invited me out and she said, we can't afford any extracurricular activities. And I had asked her, I was like, if I could figure it out on my own, could I do it? And she's like, I mean, I'd really rather you get back to help your brothers with, with their homework and things. But if you think that it can do some good and then go for it. So I went back to the school, and you know how in PE class, right? Like you would go in the locker room and there's always an old pair of shoes in the locker room somewhere that nobody wanted anymore, or they're inside a locker or old PE uniform. And so I just grabbed those and I was like, man, I'm, I'm just going to start training with the team. And so I'm wearing that stuff as I'm out training because I didn't want to put any more of a burden on my mom. Like, well, we have this shoe requirement to be on the team or we need to buy these shorts or this T-shirt. So I was like, I'm just going to figure it out on, on my own. And so I grabbed those things and I started training with the team because in my mind, I felt like, sure, we can't afford it right now, but we definitely can't afford for me to go to college. So if I could figure out a way on my own to get to college, I have to do this because I felt like, well, I was already, I think by my sophomore year in high school, I was already taking SAT prep courses, probably even late freshman year. Cause I was like, I must score high enough on the SATs. Otherwise I don't know how else I'm going to get into college. So I was like really working on trying to keep my grades up, get a high SAT score to hopefully get an academic scholarship. So I wasn't a burden on my mom. But then when I got invited to play this sport, I was like, well, that's a, no a whole nother opportunity, a whole nother lane that could potentially get me to college as well. So I wasn't going out to track practice like, oh, let's just hang out with some friends. I was going out survival to survival life. That's it. It was life or death. So when I'm competing <laughs> with someone on the track, I've, right. I've got to like blast this person out on the track, because if it means me going to college or staying in a homeless shelter, nah, man, I'm running like you've never seen anybody run before. And, and so, and that was my motivation behind wow. it. I was literally running away from homelessness, but no one mm -hmm. knew that, right? Because I couldn't tell my teammates that I go back to a shelter. And it was interesting because I've been to a lot of their homes in high school. And there, I remember there was a point where people would be like, Hey, we should just, we should go to Kent's house. <laughs> I'm like, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> right. Nobody's coming out. And so I, I appreciated that I would have to ride the San Diego trolley all the way to downtown after track practice. So by then I was like, okay, everybody's home. They're doing their homework. No one's going to notice that I rode the trolley and hopped off at the Horton Plaza mall station and then walked over into the homeless shelter because that like all had to remain secret that whole time. Your yeah. coach found out he didn't tell anybody. Coach Johnson knew and he had brought it up to my counselor, Miss Tuck, and they were talking about it. And then that was when they discovered that I was living super far away from the school because like mm -hmm. downtown to Chula Vista, which is like South Bay, San Diego, in a car, it's probably 30 minutes. So on the trolley with stops, it's probably 45 minutes to an hour. So I was having to get up super early just to get to Chula Vista High School. And the reason for that, a lot of the schools downtown were really hood or they were charter schools, there wasn't really a lot of opportunity there. And so my mom wanted to make sure we went to a decent school. And so we would get up like hours ahead. And that's the thing. I, I always trip out on people who 
have it easy and they're handed a lot of opportunity. They're being dropped off at school in a Benz and they come from a, a nice house and they've got lights and water and all of that. And they still squander that opportunity. And I'm like, here I am sometimes doing my homework by candlelight because they have lights out hour in the shelter, sometimes by like 730. They feed you and then all the lights have to be out in the units. And I'm like, well, how are we going to finish our homework? So my mom would buy those little Roman candles, you know, with like the Mother Mary and stuff on, on the candles. Mm-hmm. And we're mm-hmm. lighting those just to like stuff a towel under the door so they can't see the light coming through just to finish our homework. I'm mm-hmm. like, man, and then you got this kid that has all this opportunity and privilege and you're wasting it. And so mm-hmm. between things like that and having to get up hours early for all of us to get ready and then leave the shelter and then ride the trolley all the way to get to school. I used to trip out whenever I would see people that I'm like, man, if only you knew how much easier you have it. And so when Coach Johnson realized that, he's like, we can't send him to this charter school downtown. And I pleaded with him. I was like, look, I finally have friends here on the track team. I enjoy doing this. I'll do whatever it takes for me to be able to stay here. He's like, look, just keep your grades up, run as fast as you can. And I'll, I'll talk with the principal and try to do what we can to get you to stay here. And so that was what led to me running a 417 mile in high school. And I did that very early on in the season in the 11th grade. And so that just drew so much attention to the school because they're like, man, how much faster is this kid going to get, you know? And so I started having college scouts come out to see me run. And then that led to my college track and field scholarship. What was your idea of success at that time in your life? Obviously, you wanted to get out of poverty and homelessness and all of that. Where did you see yourself as an adult? How did you think your life was going to play out? Yeah, back when you were in high school. Yeah, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Like that was what I was really leaning towards. And I felt like if track could just pay for college, then I'll do whatever it takes to just practice a career in law. Johnny Cochran was one of your role models? Or oh, who's, totally. Who's you, I mean, well, so the, the reason for that, obviously, my dad's case, when he got booked, I always wanted to know all the details to that because it was, it was a mystery to me. You're a little mm-hmm. boy, you're walking home from school. And we walked home to the house being surrounded by police who hadn't even entered the house yet. They were basically waiting for my brother and I to open the door. So that it was Mm. safe for them. So they were like posted up around like cars and trees, basically waiting for Oni. Oni is my brother who was walking with me. And as soon as we opened the door, that's when they're like, go, 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 go. And they come rushing into the house and grab my dad. So when you go from your life being perfectly normal to all of a sudden you're being forced out of the way by local police, the feds. And it's like, what's going on? Right. So I think that always made me interested in law and then coming right off of that into we get to L.A. And then all you watch on TV is Rodney King getting attacked by these officers, which then leads to the riots. And so the only thing to watch on TV back then, everyone was focused on this Rodney King case and how that was going to play out. And then eventually that led to the riots. And then shortly after that, then it was OJ, right? Like all sorts of crazy stuff going on in LA. And, and so just causing you to watch. Court and LA TV. law was, was really big back then too. Big time. Yeah. So just that whole culture of, 
of law and these high profile cases that were happening back then that were leading to riots or leading to all of the social conversations that were taking place, even as a boy, you know, you're 10, 11 years old and people are like, yo, you think OJ really? And so like that whole period was it was just crazy growing up. And so I think that always fascinated me about the law. And that's what led me to wanting to practice that. So that was my idea of success was actually coming out of homelessness, getting to college, going to law school. I dreamt of going to either UCLA or USC. I got accepted at both, but I didn't know how I was going to pay for either one of them. USC offered me a partial, but you know how expensive USC is. I was like, Mm. with a partial track and field scholarship, it just wouldn't be enough. UCLA accepted me as a walk-on not a full ride. And so the reason why I stayed here in San Diego, I went to Cal State University, San Marcos, two reasons. One, they gave me a full ride track and field scholarship Two, America's greatest miler. Steve Scott had just taken a coaching position there that year. Mm -hmm. And he held the American mile record at three minutes and 47 seconds. So I was like, if anybody's going to get me faster, it's going to be running under Steve. And he scouted you. How did he, how did he find out about you? So that's what blew me away. Right. Because although I was really into the sport, just as an athlete, I wasn't into the sport as like knowing who the athletes were. And Mm -hmm. so I remember one day finishing a race and I came off the track and my coach, he's looking at me with this huge smile. And he's like, guess who just came to see you right now? And I was like, (laughs) who? And he goes, Steve Scott. And I was like, who's that? <laughs> what? He goes, this guy has held the American mile record for like 20 plus years. He also has the Guinness World Book record for the most times anyone has ever run a mile under four minutes. And I said, where is he? And he said he was up in the stands. He came to watch your race. He said he had to leave really quick, but he left his phone number. He wants you to call him as soon as you can, because he's trying to recruit you. And I was like, you guys are pulling my leg, man. And he was like, I'm dead serious. Ken, call him. And so I called him and it was Steve. And he said, you know, I, I can't really speak to you about the offer, but I can tell you, I was very impressed with your race today. Mm. And I've heard about you. You've been buzzing in the San Diego newspapers and I just took a coaching job. How soon can you and your mother meet with me? And we'll talk about what it's going to take to get you to college here. And so Mm -hmm. I guess that was another piece of back to your question about what did success look like to me? It was Mm -hmm. that, you know, when you go on this recruiting trip with your mom, when you're still like, by that point, we were out of the shelter and living in section eight housing, which was like government subsidized Mm -hmm. housing. We had a small apartment there. When you're going from that to going on a scouting trip and you walk into this room and it's like a number of coaches and we're negotiating what my scholarship package is going to look like. And then there's other companies that were putting up additional funds. Nordstrom's put up 10,000, Pepsi put up 2,500. And like all of these other companies that were just hearing about my story and contributing to this scholarship, that's what success felt like to me. It was like, what did you do to gain the attention of these coaches, these these brands, Nordstrom's and Pepsi, it wasn't just from running. I had written an essay about mm. what my life was up to that point and had won a $10,000 scholarship from Nordstrom's because of that essay. And it was like the whole presentation came down to my house with the big oversized check. And again, man, when you're this kid who has struggled your whole life to see $10,000 written on an oversized check, 
that's what success <laughs> looked like, man, because I had never even seen a thousand dollars before. And now you got 10 of them there that I get to use to go to college. So yeah, I definitely felt like I had made it by that point. You also now, I guess, recognize the power of your story. This thing that you used to hide and guard as closely yeah. as possible. Now you understand that actually can inspire people. Yeah, I, I had to stop hiding it because I understood how many other young people were going through the same type of upbringing that I had that probably weren't going to have the same level of ambition or help. And so I knew that like that guy who used to come down and, and read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe to me, I was like, I want to be a version of that. And so my first job ever was a peer mentor to homeless youth, literally back at the same shelters that I grew up in. And I started out just volunteering my time there. And then eventually they offered me like a role there because I, I felt like the kids had to see someone who came from the exact same place that they did, who had made it out. And so that's what led to me wanting to work on projects with them, create charitable runs and races to support them and raise funds to improve the shelters. And so I started to become less embarrassed about my story because I knew that it could help them through that period. And then, of course, that led to like media finding out. And so then it became public. And I was like, you know what? Run with it. I'm actually not embarrassed about it anymore. And especially now I'm so not embarrassed by it at all because you never know who's going to hear the story and feel inspired by it. So I love being able to share, yeah, this is where I came from. And, and I'm okay with that because there's kids that are living in those places right now that are on the brink of suicide, or they just feel alone, or they're struggling with anxiety, depression. And they think that that's the end of the world. You know, mm -hmm. and people have to realize, man, when you're 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, the things that you're going through that feel like the end of the world, it's like your life is just starting. You have so much opportunity to change lanes and, and change the course of your life. But you ask a kid 14 years old who maybe just experienced their first breakup and they're like, oh, my heart's shattered. I'm going to die. <laughs> it's like, are you kidding, man? You're 14 years old. You have so much life ahead of you. But sadly, kids are taking their own lives because of things like that, things that if they were to just get a little older and understand, man, that's such a tiny portion of your life. Just like the old people always say, just keep on living. That's it. You know, you just you keep on living and, and you'll go through all of these experiences and ranges of emotions that are going to make you. When you were first going back to volunteer, what was your mental state like? Because you experienced all this, you know, yeah. loss and trauma and all of that. Were, were you as positive then as you are now? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I definitely went into it with the intention of spreading that positivity to the kids, you know, because you have to be that way to be an athlete, you have to be very goal oriented and motivated. And so I think track did that for me. I went from being this shy kid that was like struggling to even 
speak out to my own bullies to being captain of that track team. And so once you get handed that leadership responsibility of like leading a team to a championship, you know, because track is an individual sport, but cross country is a team sport. And so as captain of the cross country team and track team, it's like, no, nah, man, we, we have to win this championship. And so it's almost like being captain of a cross country team, you're that quarterback, you're the quarterback of the team. And so people are leaning on you for leadership, not even realizing that just a year prior or months prior, you were walking around with your head down. And now, Mm -hmm. you know, you're trying to tell everyone else, keep your head up, keep your knees up when you're running and we're going to win this thing. And so I just kind of would take that same motivation and try and inspire the young people that same way. So when I walk into the shelter and there's a kid that I'm having a conversation with and the entire time during the conversation, they won't look me in the face. I'm like, yo, I used to be the same way. And I could tell you like that lack of confidence that you have to look a person in the face, it's going to make it tough for you to get a job. It's going to make it tough for you to get a date. Like I remember I used to go on dates and like I would look everywhere, but at the girl's face, I'm looking over here, I'm looking down the table, I'm looking everywhere. And I remember there was a time that there was a girl, she was like, right here, Ken, can you just look me in the eyes for just one moment? And when I couldn't, like, I realized, man, I have some serious things that I need to work on. And so these were all of the little things that when I went back to volunteer as a peer mentor in the shelter, almost all the little boys are that way. They feel so insecure that like, you go to shake their hand and it's like this weak little handshake as they're looking down, they won't even look at you. And and so I wanted to try and figure out, well, how do you take that captain of the team mentality and use that to inspire these young men and women that were living in the shelters and stand taller, let's fill out that job application. Why don't you go back to school rather than just you come out of the shelter and you go hang out on the block. And so those things became very important to me. And that led to a conversation about goals and big goals, which then led to this event. So talk about yes. that. Yeah. Yes. So I, when I, when I understood that you can't just tell them, right. You can't just tell kids who are living in a shelter or they've mm-hmm. been abused. You can't just tell them, Hey, pick yourself up. Everything's going to be all right. They're like, yeah, what does that look like? And so I knew for me, just kind of taking running to that next level, I was like, you know what, why don't we create an event then? Let's create an event. We'll shut down Hollywood Boulevard, which was ridiculous now when I even think about it, (laughs) like to go straight to Hollywood Boulevard. Like, why would you assume that you're going to be able to shut down Hollywood Boulevard? But, you know, we did. We called up LAPD and, and I said, what would it cost for us to shut down Hollywood Boulevard? And the cop laughed. He's like, they don't shut down Hollywood Boulevard for a race or for kids in a shelter as a, as a charity run. That's, they shut that down for like the Academy Awards when they're shooting a scene out of Transformers or something. They're not going to do that for some kids at the Gramercy Place homeless shelter. And I was like, oh man, well, and we were on speakerphone. And so these kids, they heard that. And, you know, they, of course, they're going to be frustrated. They felt let down as I'm hyping up. Yeah, we're going to shut down Hollywood Boulevard. We're going to get 10,000 people to come out and run this race. We're going to raise all this money. We're going to put a basketball court out on, on the yard. And we're going to do all these things with the money. And then, boom, one phone call. No, you're not. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. Well, 
can't give up hope that easy, you know? And so that's what led to me reaching out to the media and sharing, look, here's where I came from. Here's what I'm trying to do. And here's why it's important. And they came down to the shelter and did a whole profile on me, like a whole story. And then they interviewed some of the kids. And that led to so many people seeing that news clip out in LA and they started registering for this at the at that time this imaginary race the race wasn't even we didn't have permits or anything yet at that point but i was believing by faith that if i get enough people to register for this race you're gonna have to shut down the boulevard because we've got the money now and we've got the participants it's one thing to just blow it off if you're like oh yeah a handful of kids at a shelter who want to run this half marathon on their own. We're not shutting down the boulevard for that. But when I'm like, I've got 10,000 people and a million dollars, you're going to pay attention to me now. What's interesting is you had already sort of done a dry run of your story. Like that essay allowed you to really hone your pitch of what was important from yeah. your story. So I'm sure you probably used some of that or borrowed some of that, or maybe you were used to now telling your story. So when you finally reached out to the media, you didn't have to like try to guess what was appealing about your, you already knew what was appealing about your story. So you kind of knew how to play that angle. I never even thought about it like that, but you're totally right. You know, from, from having to, and I'm so thankful to Miss Tuck, my counselor in, in high school and another teacher, Miss Warmath, who like everyone hated this teacher, but I thought she was super sweet. They mm. all combined because they were aware of what I was going through, but they knew of my insecurities. It was almost like they would interview me to pull these things out. And they're like, put that in the essay, Ken, put that in the essay. And that's mm. what structured this thing. And so you're right. It's almost like very early on, it was already preparing me for what the future was going to hold to be able to share that story in such an impactful way that it led people in Los Angeles, celebrities in Los Angeles, and even LAPD to say, let's shut down the boulevard for them. And we pulled it off 13 miles of Hollywood Boulevard. And we already know how congested traffic is there. And we didn't just shut down roads. We shut down freeway on and off ramps. <laughs> like That's just insane to have to divert traffic like that for this race that we created. You raised a million dollars, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't even know you were going to have a race. Yep. Where was this money sitting in your checking yeah. account? <laughs> so um, there's, there's an online portal called active.com back then. It's a race registration site for charities. Mm -hmm. And so I built a website called the Hollywood Half Marathon. Like I was surprised that that domain was even available. I was like, how come no one's ever thought of this before? <laughs> so I registered a hollywoodhalfmarathon.com and I built the website. I pointed registrations to this website called active.com. And so active.com, just to make sure that people aren't trying to scam people, they'll take all of the race registrations and then they'll pay you little bits of what you raised along the way to cover some of your operational expenses. And then after uh, the race takes place, then they release the rest of your funds. So yeah, I was like, I didn't even know that I was going to have the race yet. But I can check in my active.com account and as well as the deposits that I was already receiving. I was like, we've got a million bucks. Like, I remember I used to call my friends back then. And I was like, you guys realize I could buy a Lamborghini right now. I won't, <laughs> but I could buy a Lamborghini right now. There's a million dollars that I have access to, but we've got to pull off this race. 
What were you doing for money at the time? Did you have a job? I was living out in San Francisco, running track with the Nike farm team, which was like Mm -hmm. an Olympic development program. And while I was there, I had started a party bus company. And the reason Mm -hmm. why I did that was there were like one of the first news stories that I read when I got there. It was about how many kids were passing away, driving drunk on, I believe it was the 101 freeway coming from San Francisco back up to Stanford University. So my Nike development team, we were training on Stanford University's campus. And so they were talking about all of these university students who had recently lost their lives driving drunk. And I remember back then thinking all these brilliant minds at Stanford and Berkeley and all these, you guys can't figure out a solution to this problem. I was like, the easiest thing is to create party transportation from all of the colleges, right? So this is back in 05, before a party bus ever even existed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? Why don't I call up a charter bus company and have this charter bus meet at the Stanford University parking lot? And then I would just charge people admissions to board the bus. And then I would negotiate a contract with the clubs down in San Francisco so that people can hop to these clubs. This is pre any party bus company that ever existed. Yeah, pre Uber, all that. Yeah. Any of those things. Exactly. No rideshare apps, any of that. Right. And so I was like, to make it more appealing to kids, you're not going to have to pay cover to get into the club because I've already negotiated the deal with the club owners. And the way I got the club owners to accept all of these kids to come into their clubs, uh, you know, how clubs, they usually try and keep people outside from like 10 to 11 to make it seem like the club is popping. But if I brought 50 people on a bus and just dropped them, you can let them in and the club is popping because that's an instant 50 people. And if I have multiple buses coming from a number of colleges, I could get you 100 people in your club right by the time your club opens. And so it went from having one bus leaving Stanford University to where I had buses leaving from Stanford, from Berkeley, from Santa Clara University, and they were coming from all over the Bay Area. And then I would just funnel them into the clubs that were cool with me, like whoever negotiated the best deal. I was like, then you're going to take all these college students, they're going to party, and then they're going to leave early and safe back to their colleges. So now there's no more drunk driving accidents down the highway. And I was like, simple problem to solve. And that's from the kid that didn't go to Stanford. I'm like, you guys couldn't figure that out. And so that became a very lucrative opportunity for me because I ran that for a number of years, which is also what took my focus away from track and field. I think it was my first real successful entrepreneurial venture to where I went from being, I would say, a struggling track athlete because track athletes, we're not paid like basketball players or football players. Like we get a lot of gear. Yeah, I had a lot of Nike gear back then. You call coach if you needed shoes, shorts, mm-hmm. singlet, whatever, they hook you up. Right. But that doesn't, you can't eat shoes, <laughs> you know, like you have to figure out how you're still going to put food on your table, how you're going to pay your rent. And so although coach didn't want me running that business, when it quickly became so successful, he was like, you might want to stick with that. He goes, but do me a favor and stop having the guys work for you. Cause I was taking other Nike athletes <laughs> and I'm like, yo, can you man the bus coming from Berkeley and I'll man the one coming from Stanford. And so, and I was paying them to do that. And he's like, Ken, you can't have the guys partying all night with you on your buses and then showing up at track practice, like struggling the next day. And so eventually I had to let the guys go and then hire actual staff from the nightlife scene. But that was what I was doing. So that was like my early taste at being an entrepreneur. 
That's why you had the LAPD on speakerphone because you're a hustler. You knew how to negotiate. I was like, oh, we're doing this. I'm going to show these kids what a true (laughs) negotiation actually sounds like. Without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. This wasn't just some blind, let me call up LAPD and hope that it's going to happen. I was was already used to negotiating with the police just in moving my buses around. Right. Right. And I think by that point, I was only like... 23 years old running that operation. At one point, I owned 12 Greyhound buses at age 24. <laughs> 12 Greyhound buses. You owned 12 owned, Greyhound buses? Owned. You I was purchasing them. Yes. Like I went from chartering buses to eventually I hated that when I would charter buses, the drivers, when they see that you're making too much money, then they try and hustle you out of like what the cost is for the bus by the end of the night. Or they would like, make up stuff like, oh, someone got sick on the bus. So it's going to cost you an extra 250 Mm. or I didn't want anyone using the restroom on the bus because I have a corporate run tomorrow. So I'm going to charge you this. So I just Mm. got to the point where I was like, let me call Greyhound and find out whenever their buses reach high mileage to where they can't take them across the country, how much would you sell your high mileage buses to me for? And so I started buying these high mileage buses from Greyhound. And I found this huge bus yard where I would park. I still don't have the CDL license and things to be able to drive the bus <laughs> drive the bus around, but I owned 12 of them. And so I would just have drivers come down and drive all of the passengers. I knew how to move the buses around the yard, but I would never take it out onto the street. But yeah, 24 years old, man, 12 Greyhound buses in a row. And they would go out every Friday and Saturday night. And eventually I had the drivers on on my own payroll. But that was like my first really successful venture. And I've had a number of others along the way, including what the Hollywood Half Marathon became. It went from just being the Hollywood Half Marathon to superhero events. And the reason why it became superhero events, I seemed to have a knack for getting first-time runners out to my events because of the way I marketed my races. My races were not for... It wasn't for the weekend warrior who wants to run a 5K, 10K half marathon every Saturday or Sunday. When you come to our races, it was like an experience. You come to pick up your runner's bib and you have to wear a suit or a tuxedo because our pickup isn't at a local running store. It's at the Hollywood Palladium with paparazzi there and a red carpet because we wanted to honor you as a runner, even if you've never run before. No matter how skinny or overweight you were, it didn't matter. Everyone was treated like a celebrity when you were coming to our events. And so we were really helping people find their inner superhero. And that's what led to creating that and why it did so well for a while, you know, for roughly about six years, we would have 10,000 people come out every year, which is insane for a first year half marathon. You're lucky if you get 600, 10,000, like, how is he doing this? And it was all in the marketing. Talk about the experience your mother had when she came to that event. Oh, man. Yeah. It was such a special thing because as the oldest boy, especially the oldest boy in a Nigerian family, my mom had to be hard on me because I set the example for my younger siblings. And so she's like, if I mess up with the oldest one, then you've lost all of them. So she was always like really hard on me, didn't really care to be my friend. She's like, I'm your mom, not your friend. And so like all of the discipline and things that I felt where she was just whipping me into shape my whole life. And I remember back then, even whenever I would get a little bit of money and she would ask me for it or take it from me to go and do other things with. And and I used to tell her, mom, if you're poor and 
I'm poor and I'm trying to figure out how to multiply this money. If you keep taking it from me to spread across for grocery or to do things for the other kids, we're never going to get anywhere. And she's like, boy, mm-hmm. quiet and give me your money. Right? <laughs> and so when we finally got to the point where the Hollywood half marathon was like this big thing. And so I had booked out all of these rooms at the W Hotel on Hollywood Boulevard, where mm-hmm. I had like my celebrity guests that were staying. And then the, I had my mom in this really nice suite. And so I went up to her room right before the race was going to start because it starts super early in the morning, roughly about 6 a.m. because we didn't want it to get too warm. And so we're out on her balcony and I said, hey, mom, I'm going to call into my guys that I have manning the starting line of the race. But I want you to stay out here on the balcony with me. And in a couple of minutes, you're going to see what's going to happen. And so we're just standing there talking on the balcony of her room at the W Hotel as all of a sudden 10,000 people fill up the streets and go running by. And she starts crying and she looks at me and she's like, I just can't believe that my little boy that I spent so much time like trying to just make sure he stayed on the straight and narrow path that you did this. Like you have all of these people here because of an idea in your head. And to be using this as an opportunity to go back to those shelters that took care of us to say thank you. And she's like, there's no greater joy that I have. And coming from a mother who was very, very hard on me growing up, that was like our first real magical moment of I'm proud of you. My mom had never seen me race in my entire track career. Still till today, Mm. my mom's never seen me race. She's never been to one single track me across country, me, none of that. One day, actually, she had come out onto the track as I was finishing like my last few steps of a mile of a mile race that I had won. And so she missed it. And I don't fault her for that. She was a single mother trying to raise five kids through homelessness. Extracurricular activities were not her focus, especially as an African mother. Like she's like, focus on your studies, all this running around. What's that supposed to do? But she saw the effects of that when she was standing on that balcony in Hollywood. And she was so overwhelmed with joy in seeing that. And it's a sight to see when 10,000 people go running by and to know that the only reason why they're running by is because of an idea from your son's mind. I can only imagine what that felt like to her. But then the Boston Marathon bombing happened. Exactly. Yeah, it happened the same year that was our first year Hollywood Half Marathon. And so 2013 was our race. And our race just happens to take place the first Sunday in April every year. And so that next day, Monday morning, is Patriots Day. And so as we're having our debrief meeting, and we're talking about ways to improve on the Hollywood half marathon. We're like, next year we should do this and do that. We got to become like them because they were so big and like everybody knows of the Boston marathon. And then boom, you see that breaking news headline that bombs had gone off at the finish line. And I just remember feeling like, man, who would bomb runners? Like my whole life, all of the runners that I have met have been some of the most kind, genuine and supportive people that I've met in my life from the coach to my teammates. When I went to college, same thing, Coach Scott, my teammates there, they were all still my friends today. There were people who were looking out for me. When I was with Nike, Coach Frank Mm -hmm. Adriano, my teammates there while we were up at Stanford, it was just like, man, everybody 
along the way of my life, all of my favorite people were runners. And so I was like, any runners that are there, they have to be those same sort of people. And no one deserves to be attacked in such a way to be doing your sport, crossing the finish line and a bomb goes off. And even for the spectators that were there cheering for their families. And so I was just like, no, man, I have to do something about this because I felt like I owe the sport back, right? Like this sport took me out of homelessness. It got me to college. It gave me purpose. The only reason why I'm even able to talk to you right now, to have this conversation with you right now, literally is the confidence that I picked up through being a track athlete, right? And so I have always felt like I owe the sport big time. Because if it wasn't for running, I was sure I was probably going to go to the Air Force. Like I was already studying my ASVAB. That was my fallback plan was if I didn't get a scholarship to college, I was going to join the Air Force. And running changed that path for me. But more than that, it gave me confidence and a personality to be able to create other entrepreneurial ventures. And so I was like, you know, I have to do something. And that something initially I thought was going to be run in the race, but not just run it, but invite and encourage tens of thousands of other people to join me there, right? Because I had just come off of 10,000 people just ran Hollywood with me. Hey, you guys, let's go and make the next Boston the biggest Boston ever. And so they were like, word, okay. And so everyone starts registering to do it. And they're pledging on this site that I, I had made Actually, the page that I had created back then, it was actually called Free Hugs for Runners. <laughs> like that was the name of the, the whole brand. It was like a Facebook page, a website. It was called Free Hugs for Runners. And we're going to be a crew and we're going to go and run the Boston Marathon, tens of thousands of us to say that we're not intimidated by these acts of terror. And if you were to go to like even the Free Hugs Project Facebook page right now, I think you could sort back to the history of what, what the page used to be called. And it was Free Hugs for Runners. Where did that name come from? I felt like because of this bombing that took place, I was like, we have to figure out a way to like show love to the running community because they were hurting. And so I was like, free hugs for runners is like a healing way to how do we combat this terror attack that happened there? And so we were- I mean, run. were you in the shower? Like, did it just occur to you? You knew right away, this is it, free hugs for runners. That's what I'm supposed to, this is what I'm supposed to call yeah, it. Yeah, it was just, I, maybe it was in shower. I don't know, because ideas do come to me in the shower and in the plane, for sure. I feel like when I can't do anything else, then my ideas start spinning. And so it was probably one of those places, but mm -hmm. I was like, free hugs for runners just makes sense. We're going to go out there and run, but we're going to be like ambassadors of love when we go out and run this race. But most importantly, we're going to show that we're not scared of your acts of terror, that we're going to come back in bigger numbers. And so, because at that time, there was the whole Boston Strong movement that formed immediately in response. And so I was like, how do you set yourself apart from this huge movement of Boston Strong? Boston Strong was almost as bold a statement as those live strong bracelets in the nineties, right? Like Boston strong came out and everyone knew of those colors, the blue and the mm -hmm. gold right after the bombing. And so I was like, I want to associate myself with that, but I kind of want to carve my own lane. And so my own lane was free hugs for runners. And we were going to get tens of thousands of runners that were going to show up at the Boston marathon and we're going to run it. And we're going to be like emotional support for other people that are there. And I was the one who missed qualifying by a few seconds. Like you have to pick which race you're going to use to get into Boston to run as a qualifier. And at the time being under age 35, it's the fastest qualifying time to get in. It was three hours and five minutes. 
and you had to run three hours and five minutes flat. And I ran in the qualifier race and I ended up running three hours, five minutes, like 0.11 seconds. Mm. And so because of that, like had come so close, like can you imagine training for something for an entire year and running in this race for three hours, feeling good and checking your watch and like, I'm right on pace, I'm right on pace. And in that year and three hours wasted from just 11 extra seconds, like 11 seconds, that's nothing. I could go down these stairs right here and come up in, in 11 seconds. What happened? Did you lose track of time or did you think you, was your clock slow or what, what, what happened? Two, I, two things I think happened. One, I cut it too close, but two, whether people believe it was God or the universe or whatever it is that people <laughs> want to say it was, it was meant to have been missed because uh. in missing it led to what the next idea was, which was free hugs for runners needed to mean fly out there and literally hug people. Right. And that gave birth to that idea as I had to go back and tell my wife, like, look, I already bought tickets to Boston because I thought I was going to run in the race. So I'm going there anyway, and I'm going to cheer on all of these runners who took my pledge as the whole free hugs for runners movement was growing. And I was like, I'm going to go out there and just hug on as many people as I can. You ran twice, right? You tried to qualify, I tried to qualify twice within a week. And within a week. It, well, yeah, correct. So I first ran one seaside here in the Los Angeles area. So it was like a coastal race. It was mostly flat ground. And I was feeling good that whole way and missed it there by like 11 seconds. And so, and I ran that one on a Sunday. So by that Saturday, so literally the same week, it was in one week, I was like, then I have to run it again. And anyone who knows, if you've ever run a marathon, you don't run two marathons in one week. Like you're, you're still getting feeling back in your legs, right? And even worse, I said, well, I'm a better downhill runner than a flat runner. And so I said, I'm going to fly out to Utah where I knew all of their marathons come downhill. And so there was this race called the Big Cottonwood Marathon. And I was like, I'm going to run this one because it's going to force me downhill for the entire way of the marathon. And so I ran it and same thing coming down the hill. And I think this time it was like 305.9 or something like that. It's like, what? Twice? Like, and, and you came that close again. I almost wondered if I would have just skipped the LA one and went straight to Utah, would I have like blasted past that 305? And that's why I still think it was all fate. It was meant to be. I was not mm. supposed to run in the Boston Marathon. I tried it twice as an elite runner, as being in the top shape of my life. And I couldn't hold this pace for even just a few extra seconds to help me reach that goal. And in all of my running career, I had never shed tears at the finish line of a race until mm. after that big cottonwood race in Utah, because that feeling of defeat from like muscle aches and pain, but then also emotionally of saying, man, I was really doing this to be there with the people of Boston and I let them down. Like, I'm not going to be a part of this whole thing. And I've promoted it to everyone. Free hugs for runners was going on with or without me. Everyone was already like people who had the slower qualifying times or who were faster than me because they were marathoners. They were all going, I'm not a marathoner. I run one mile really fast. I don't run 26.2 <laughs> miles. And so there was a bunch of people that were going who took that pledge of free hugs for runners. But I was like, I'm not going to be able to make it. 
And so they went and I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to put free hugs on a t-shirt and go out there anyway. And then that's what gave birth to the whole movement of what later became the free hugs project. And I didn't know that at the time, but until I stood out there on the race course and I was just hugging people as they were coming by, because I wasn't even sure that people would take me up on that offer, right? Like you're a black dude standing in Boston. Who's going to give you a hug (laughs) in Boston on a race course? And so I was like, well, I'll see what happens, you know, and if I don't get any hugs, it's all good. I gave it a try. But I had free hugs on a t-shirt. I held a free hug sign. And of course, the elite runners ran past me because they're racing for prize money. They're racing to win. But right after the elites went by, it took that one first person to break the ice and come and give me a hug. And strangely, back then, it was Doug Flutie, who was the former San Diego Chargers quarterback, which is crazy because... I live here in San Diego. And so it was so strange that out of 50,000 people that were running that race, this first dude that comes in and he's got like the American flag on his shorts and he kind of puts his arms in like an airplane motion and comes over to me and then gives me that hug, like flew into me and gives me that hug. And that was literally the first hug that I got in Boston. He had no clue who I am. Doesn't know that I'm from San Diego, but it was our former San Diego Chargers quarterback. And then he continues running on. But once he set that example, it broke the ice and thousands of people behind him started coming in and taking the hug. And just like back here, I had my camera with the tripod set up right behind me as everyone was running by because I wanted to document the experience. And so I took that video, uploaded it to YouTube and Facebook instant viral hit by the time I had made it back to my transfer from LAX back to San Diego. And I was just like, what just happened? And then it seemed like every news site in the country was either sharing the video of this feel good moment that happened at the Boston Marathon. I think it first started with BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed Mm -hmm. like snipped up animated GIFs of mm-hmm, snippets mm-hmm. of everything that was happening there. And they're like, and then this hug where this person jumped into his arms and this hug <laughs> where this person was wearing a tutu. And it was just this really feel good thing. And then they shared the link to the video. So the video just went nuts. And then it went from BuzzFeed to Huffington Post, New York Times, Boston Globe, started getting invited out to do TV shows from Good Morning America to flew out to London to do Good Morning Britain. All of these wow. websites talking about what inspired you to do this thing after this bombing took place? Like, why was free hugs your response? And so that led to that conversation. What did you experience that was unexpected from that first hugging event? I wished that the world could be like that all the time, you know, because I, after so many people coming in and sharing those hugs with me, It's like in those moments, you forget that you were the homeless kid who struggled with your own insecurities. And now all of a sudden, everybody sees you. And when I got back to the shelter with these kids that I was mentoring, and I'm talking with them about the experience as well. And they were saying the same thing, like, Ken, you have to keep this up. People can see us now, you know, and and I knew how much it meant to feel invisible, as did they. And we're now all of a sudden their mentor, uh, their peer mentor is like, on all these social media news sites. And so by the time I had landed and turned on my phone and I'm like, what is going on? This thing was a a viral hit. And just being part of that experience, I had never had any sort of viral fame or viral success before. So I didn't know what that 
that entails. And then shortly after, when you're being called by all of these news sites to do an interview, it felt good, but it only felt good for a little bit because it went from, man, this is awesome to, wait, is the only reason why this is gaining all of this attention? Is it because people aren't like that anymore towards one another? They're not sharing these moments of positive human interaction. They're not sharing these random acts of, of kindness. We're seeing each other as we pass on the sidewalks and we're looking down at our phones, right? And so, and that always reminded me of when I was the kid in the hallway, looking down at the ground because I didn't want to make eye contact with people. And I'm like, now everybody's doing the same thing, but they're looking at their phones like that. And I was like, man, this is terrible what we've become. We didn't have those phones back then. We weren't attached to our phones back then. And now, even when I'm on college campuses, all the kids have headphones in their ears and they're looking down at their phone. I'm like, man, you just missed. Maybe your potential spouse could have just walked by (laughs) and you're so like connected to your phone. And so that started to make me sad. It made me realize, man, it makes it easy to attack each other. It makes it easy to be mean to one another, to be less civil towards one another, the further that we get away from real human interaction. If everything becomes virtual and we're not hugging each other, we're not high-fiving each other and forming these real friendships, we don't really know how to act when we're around people. And so, so that came to life for me at that time, which really started to shift my work to where I knew that I didn't want to just do this in the feel-good places anymore. I needed to start going out where people were hurting, where people were being attacked, and there was a lot of violence. And that's what led to being out on the front lines, because I was so torn by the Trayvon Martin shooting by George Zimmerman. And I don't often share this with people. I put out a video back then because it was really starting to hurt me as I watched on Facebook, some of these same people who were running in my races or they were signing up for free hugs for runners, I would see the evil things that they would write about Trayvon Martin saying that like he deserved it or whatever. And that was really hurting me to my core because to me, I looked like Trayvon Martin. I was that same kid who, and Skittles really are my favorite candy. I would have been the same kid walking down to the corner store to go and get Mm -hmm. some Skittles and easily could have been stalked by this man the same way. And so when I was reading what people were saying about him, it was like really breaking my heart. And so I had made a video back then and I talked about how, you know, for all of you guys that are following my work right now and running in my races, but you're saying these really evil things about Trayvon Martin, know that I was that same kid. And you're signing up and you're coming to my races and showing me all the support and and love. But if Trayvon Martin would have been given enough time to get to my age, he probably could have done the same thing. But we'll Mm -hmm. never know that because his life was cut short, you know, and and a lot of people like that video really resonated with them because I was like, if you're not giving black boys enough time to mature into men, then you're judging them at a period of their life where we all could have made mistakes. We all were hotheads. If you're following me, I might fight you. I was that same kid, you know, who would have known I'd grow up to be a father of five and trying to be a change maker and doing all of these things that like just feel right to me. But I was the same knucklehead kid back then. My brothers and I, if we had to take care of business, we would take care of business. And so to see people speaking of him in that way, I was like, but you're judging a boy. How many of you guys have little boys that would have done a very similar thing? 
And so when I put that video out, that was the beginning of me starting to move more towards conscious work like that, like being out on the front lines, but not only being on the front lines, but being more aware of the way that people judge people, especially people of color. I'm like, they don't understand us or where we come from. And I always used to say back then, like, they'll take our dads away from us and then laugh at us for not having dads. And that always like was so true of a statement to me because my dad got removed from the house. But then there's like this running joke of like black kids don't have father figures or don't have their dad. And I'm like, because the incarceration rates of how easy you guys make it to go and lock up our fathers makes it so easy. And then you turn around and then you laugh at us and judge us for not having fathers when really the system is set up in a way to take our fathers from us. And so when I started to understand those things, I was like, I've got to change that. One, I've got to be a better role model and example of what a black father looks like. Two, I have to make sure that people understand in a way that is easily digestible to them. I've wanted them to understand the struggles of just being a black man in America in a way that like isn't confrontational to where they're like, oh yeah, always complaining or whatever. I just wanted them to understand in a really simple way. And so because of that, it's like most of my audience of the the Free Hugs Project and the work that I do, like the Black and Blue podcast, I was just laughing with the sheriff recently because I asked him, I said, if you were to look in your stats on Facebook or on your social media, what's the majority of people that are following you? He said, middle-aged white women. I said, mine too. He said, how is that possible? And I said, because it's like, I'm trying to create allies. I'm trying to create accomplices to the fight, to the struggle. Because if it's always people who look like me that are complaining about the things that are going on in our lives, then that's all it will be treated as, as, oh, the black people are just complaining again, right? But if you put it in other people's face and you say, hey, here's what we're being faced with in, the, in this country. Here's the injustice that we see regularly. I was like, if you can help other people understand that, people from other cultural groups, backgrounds, different races and ethnicities, if they can see that, that's how you form more allies. And that's how you move more towards peace and understanding. But if it's just an echo chamber, if I'm just like, yo, light, man, I got pulled over by this cop and this happened, blah, 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 blah. Like, you'd be like, of course, all of us, right? We all deal with that. But when you're saying that to your white ally, friend, male or female, like, hey, I got pulled over and this happened and that happened. And they're like, my experience has never been anything like that when I got pulled over. And it's like, well, that's the problem, right? How do we work towards changing those things? And so when I understood that, that's when I started putting more focus into that sort of work, because I was like, I could be a change maker in my own way. The Black community might not fully understand the reason why I do things the way that I do, but there's a community that I speak to who it's important for them to understand what our experiences are. And so that became like the shift of the work to being more on the front lines. Also going back to the party bus experience, like that was the breadcrumb of you working with police officers, learning what their priorities are and you know how to speak their language. And then on your, on your Hollywood Boulevard, 5Ks, same thing, you know, you're dealing with 50, 75 cops. Yep. So then by the time you decide to go to North Carolina to participate in this crazy, chaotic riot. protest yeah, slash out riot, on the front line. Yep. you had a very interesting interaction yeah. with he, a cop. 
Yeah, and it's really interesting that you that you say that because you know sometimes I don't even think of it like that. That yes, my early days of understanding crowd control when dealing with law enforcement when I'm dumping off sometimes a thousand people on a Saturday night. You know, you're loading up all of these buses with people and then going back and picking up people for prom. And it's like, man, on one Saturday we might move a thousand people. And so, of course, when you get to those places, there's police standing outside the doors of nightclubs, and like I'm like, hey, everybody stay cool, hop in line there. And so, and then I would talk with the officers, talk with the bouncers. And so, yeah, you're right. I had those early interactions with law enforcement. And then of course, with the Hollywood half marathon, all of the police that I would sit in meetings with for like the planning of the event. So I went from growing up disliking police to understanding that if we work together, there's a lot that we could accomplish. And so I I took that same mindset of being out on the front lines of, look, we can work together and actually solve something and not have to attack one another. And so that's why one of my more viral or the most viral front lines moment that I've ever had was in Charlotte in 2016, as people were starting to loot from stores it reminded me of the LA riots all over again. And the first thing I thought was spring into action, talk to the protesters and try to get them to stand down and not destroy their own community. And then from there, as I'm walking and talking with the protesters, that was when this large white officer looked at my shirt and he said, hey man, do I get one of those hugs? And Mm -hmm. you pause in a moment like that because it's literally gunshots going off. There's tear gas in the air, people are choking, there's these flashbang devices, everyone is running in different directions because some people were there just to destroy things, some people were there with valid reasons for protest, and some were just knuckleheads, they're setting fires, they're breaking fights or breaking into fights. And so here I was as this officer asked this, and I saw it just as a moment of extending that olive branch of can we bridge the gap and create some peace between this white officer in Charlotte, North Carolina, and this black peace activist who ultimately just wants peace and to really get people together to talk about the issues rather than attacking one another. And so I hugged him. And prior to hugging him, I had already assumed that all of these protesters who I was talking with earlier, who understood why I was there. Some of them had even, they were watching some of my former videos and they were bugging out that I was there. Like, yo, it's the free hugs guy, man. I can't believe you came out here. I'm having conversations with them. And literally just because of hugging this officer, it was like, boom, the crowd turned on me. And I always talk about how, you know, you go into fight or flight mode and I'm still really fast. I could have just run away and it would have been over, right? Like there would have, no one there would have caught me. That's for sure. But I was like, this is your moment. You know, when I was a boy in the LA riots in 92 and everyone's running in and out of the shelter with all these things that they looted from the stores and I wanted to be a part of it. And instead, my mother put emphasis and focus on what would Dr. King do? Then that same mentality came into my head right there on the front lines. What would Dr. King do? And it was like, talk to the people, just talk to them. You don't run away from them, talk to the people. And it was in talking to the people that it created this really viral moment because sometimes when people watch that video and they're like, your words were just so poignant and straight to the heart, it was that rehearse. I was like, you don't rehearse something like that. It's either you better have the right words or somebody's about to crack a 40 ounce over your head, (laughs) you know? So it's like, you're speaking from the heart because it's literally 
survival. You know, there's people standing there with weapons because you hugged a cop. You seem like a traitor, a sellout, uh, all the other things that they called me there just for doing that. And I was like, well, I needed them to understand why I did it. I didn't expect them to do it. I just wanted them to understand why I did. And then this could be the beginning of, of building a bridge between both sides and the dialogue that we get to share and the good that we get to do. And we did that too, the good that came from that. When now I've got officers that are serving in homeless shelters with me. I've got officers that are traveling with me to colleges to answer kids' questions about this thing happened to me by a white officer and I don't know how to address it. Cool, let's talk about it because this white officer that I just brought here with me, he comes from a place of compassion and doesn't want you to ever experience something like that again. And we go through different trainings and scenarios and like you get pulled over at night, it's okay to drive to where you feel safe, a lit parking lot, because you're scared. The officer is scared too. Let's have those conversations. But those things start from moments like that on the front lines that it actually, we don't even, you can't count how many lives we've probably saved just through the dialogue and conversations that we've got to have over the years. The amount of homeless people that we've been able to serve by taking the funds and resources of law enforcement agencies and departments and say, let's go do some good with it back into the community. Sometimes they just need a leader. They need somebody that's going to say, hey, let's create this thing. So right now, next month, we're holding a Christmas event that we did last year in Detroit, where we raise all of these funds from corporations. And we actually go around town two weeks before Christmas, and we answer people's holiday wishes. And so we're finding the mothers that were just like my mom who didn't know how her kids were going to have Christmas. And we're finding out all the things that those kids need. And we're getting them that for Christmas. Last year, there was a home that we saw where it was raining and there was an opening in their roof. So it was raining into the house in Detroit. And I'm like, this is not okay. You know, and so all of those things came from that first hug that you get to have with a law enforcement officer and bridging the gap and saying, let's do some good through this relationship. You know, and so for the people who try and kick it down or knock it down, they don't understand, but it's why I do it. Your mission now is to de-escalate violence during periods of unrest, which could yeah. be could be at a riot, it could be at a protest, could be at a rally, right? In yeah. the last couple of years, especially those situations have become so politicized. So I'm just wondering how you're able to balance that these days, being a black man in America from, you know, growing up from poverty, homelessness, and yet you have this interesting relationship with law enforcement, which is the Achilles heel for a lot of black people. And a lot of black people will probably argue to death that there are more bad apples than there are good apples Mm -hmm. in law enforcement. And the system is working exactly as designed and all of that. So how do you save face? Yeah, it's tough. Sometimes the older black community doesn't really understand it because there is a lot of trauma and experiences that they've had uh, to where they're like, why would you ever interact with the police? Like they're all bad apples. Right. But I, I've seen and worked with them and understood them in a different way. And it's not about teaching 
the young people in the black community how to interact better necessarily for survival. It's about training the officers who I'm working with to give those young black kids the same courtesy that you give me when you know that I'm me, right? Because I've found that now through my work, obviously there's privilege that I've been afforded through law enforcement agencies across the country. There was literally a time I was pulled over speeding in Texas. This officer saw my ID, looked at me a couple of times, and he went into fanboy mode and was starstruck and like asked if I can hop into his car because he's always wanted to ask me a bunch of questions. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like this dude was interviewing me on the side of the highway in Texas. And he's like, what made you start this thing? I saw you out there in Charlotte, man. I've always been like, if I ever meet this guy and I'm like, am I getting pulled over or arrested? Like what's going on? Right. (laughs) And so, sure. I don't expect that to be the same experience with random people that they meet, but it's like that same courtesy that you give me when you pull me over, it feels like you didn't even see my skin color. You saw the brand that I represent. Mm -hmm. So don't see the skin color of that next person, that young person that you pull over where you're a little bit too harsh or aggressive with that kid because I've been that kid for oftentimes being pulled over before I was the free hugs guy, always been terrified of the police, always been terrified of the police. And rightfully so, because I know that the way they spoke to me was not how they were speaking to my white homeboys in college at all. Right. And so I've always felt that way about law enforcement. And so I was like, if you can extend that same grace and courtesy that you give me, as you know, who I am, do that the same way for the black kid who you don't know who they are and don't feel like that kid is out to get you because that's what makes these traffic stops so hostile. We're nervous because we think that this is going to go bad and they're out to get us. And then they're feeling the same way that this person probably hates me. So now I've got to be more hostile because they might be trying to take me out. And so now you got both sides thinking they're in a life or death situation. When does that ever go well? (laughs) Right. But it's like, if both sides can just, calm down and let's speak to each other with some respect, traffic stops will go far better than the way that they go. But unfortunately, we haven't reached that point yet. And sadly, it's because what people see in the viral videos, and then that leads the officers to then feel like they have to be on the defense thinking, well, they're watching these videos. And so they hate me. And so if I stop them for whatever reason, then they might want to shoot me. Now, both sides are on edge. So a lot of the trainings that I do now, it's to get both sides to be at ease, get the officers to be at ease and to get the young people to be at ease and things will go so much better. So I'm often sharing little ideas like, you know, if you can ride around with your registration and insurance inside the little mirror visor thing. So it's very easy for you to, when you get pulled over, keep your hands on the steering wheel. And when they say driver's license and registration, do you mind if I grab it out of my visor here, right? So you're not reaching over into your glove box and they're like, gun, gun, gun. No, there's no gun. I'm just getting the thing that you asked me for, right? But if we're nervous and they say driver's license and registration, you're nervous, you're scared, and you just rush straight to your glove box already because you're black. They're nervous because they feel like, well, this is someone who doesn't like me or whatever racist reasons they might have to already be more aggressive towards an African-American person. There's all these reasons 
that can make a traffic stop go bad. And so I'm like, whatever ideas and tips that you can give to put both sides at ease, then I think that's important. So now I spend a lot of my time doing those sort of trainings. And I'm getting to the point where I was already feeling like I didn't want to be on the front lines anymore. And then when this recent Kyle Rittenhouse verdict came out, what was that just last week or so, I had put mm-hmm. out that video where I shared, I don't feel comfortable on the front lines anymore. Because if people are okay with bringing guns out to the front lines and actually firing those weapons, I already jumped out of the way of the car when James Fields ran over 19 people in Charlottesville. I was right there, heard the car as it whizzes right past me, and I had to watch 19 people get hit and stood there as Heather Heyer breathed her last breath in that alleyway. So I know how close you can be to death in those moments on the front lines, but also how quick things can go from good to bad. And at 40 years old and with young children that I'm raising, last thing I want to do is be out there on the front lines and be part of a, a active shooting situation or a car that's being used as a weapon to take out protesters. And so I feel like I'm better suited doing the trainings and things that I'm doing on high school and college campuses, in and out of law enforcement departments. So I'm reaching that point. I'm like, I'm going to let the, the young people who are in their 20s, who are still filled with that fire to create change, allow them to be out on the front lines. So it's interesting. We started about my age being 40. And I think this is that next chapter of my life right now. I don't feel like a 40 year old man. As an inspiration or maybe a mentor to the younger people and having been on the front lines of dozens of these protests and rallies and riots, what suggestions do you have for them who are still going out? And now with this whole other dynamic of people bringing assault rifles and yeah. And maybe cops being a little bit more impatient or maybe running up on the wrong police officer who hasn't experienced one of the trainings. What suggestions do you have for people who may be in a particularly hairy situation? Yeah, I would say one like these protests, the moment that it seems like it's no longer peaceful, get out Mm -hmm. of there. Because it only takes a second to go from a peaceful rally to a riot. And it's the riots that are getting people into trouble. It's the riots that are dangerous places for folks to be hanging out. And that, to me, that used to be commonplace for me. I'm like, oh, I feel comfortable here. I was going to say, you usually run into the middle of it. it. Yeah, I run into the violence. I run into the chaos. And I don't wear a vest. I don't wear a gun. I'm just like, how can I help? How can I de-escalate the tension that Mm -hmm. exists here? But that's not ideal anymore. I mean, I've, I've been there when someone was shot and died right there on the front lines. I've been there as Heather was hit by the car and died there on the front lines. I've seen people get badly, badly hurt from these tear gas canisters and flashbang devices. And it's a scary place for people to be. And so I know that some people have that fascination of, oh, that's fascinating. I want to go out there on the front lines. I think the best advice I could give as someone who has spent seven years out on the front lines is don't like you're, you're better off safe at home. Even if it's just to go and document what's, what's going on. It's like, there's people that are built for that. They're wearing helmets and vests and everything else. It's not the sort of place that, that you want 
to be. And so, yeah, I, like, I guess that's the best advice that, that I can give people is when a protest or rally becomes a riot, get out of there. It's not worth it anymore. The force that the police are going to use by that point, or also now these vigilantes, which that wasn't really a thing. That wasn't mm-hmm. a thing for me the past seven years. Vigilantes arming themselves and coming out there and saying, we're going to either be the police or assist the police or get deputized by the police. That was not a thing. And I already know that now moving forward, I guarantee you that's going to be the norm. It's going to be the norm. There will be white supremacists, KKK, people from Austin, because when you've spent so many years of those groups feeling like organizations like Black Lives Matter are their enemy, then they feel like, well, then now they have to arm themselves to retaliate. And so you can catch yourself in the middle of what feels like the wild, wild west now. People just taking matters into their own hands. And they can better believe that now Black Lives Matter protesters are going to arm and prepare themselves as well because they know what's coming. I am not like equipped to stand in the middle anymore. I used to look forward to standing in the middle. Now I'm good. And and that's like literally as of this verdict, just a couple of days ago is when I came to that final realization of it, where I said, no more, I'm hanging it up. And basically not necessarily retiring the free hugs project. It's just going to pivot and I'm going Mm. to be impactful in different ways. How are you thinking about success these days after all these experiences? Yeah, it's interesting because I was just recently telling my wife, I noticed that every project that I do goes on a seven-year run and then it's complete. And I find that to be really strange. Like track and field for me, it was like seven years and then I let it go. VIP club bus when I was running my party bus company, seven years, let it go. Superhero events, Hollywood half marathon, seven years, let it go. And then now I've been on the front lines seven years. And by my 40th birthday next month is when I officially have told my wife, I'm no longer going on the front lines. And the seven years is not deliberate. It just seems to kind of happen that way. And so I think now I view success incrementally and it comes in phases. And I think people always feel like when I reach this point in my life, I'm successful. I've been successful numerous times and you just reinvent yourself all over again, because at the end of each one of those seven years, there was this period of, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And so it's like this rebirth of what's like right now, I don't really know what I'm going to do next. Literally, like right now from 40 to maybe 47, if it just happens to be seven years, I don't know what I'm going to do from 40 to 47. And I'm okay with that because I know that along the way, something is going to happen. All of those other things were not planned. I just kind of found myself in that space, you know, at Stanford University, coming off of the local train there and reading in the newspaper about all these kids dying on the highway. And I was like, I could do something about that. The Hollywood half marathon feeling like, well, I'm a runner and I want to inspire these kids. I could do something about that. And so all of these things, they just kind of come in phases. And so people who like to build these huge companies and have all of this staff and all of that, that's great. I like I don't even know that they sometimes see themselves successful. They're like, I might be running this huge company, but at the end of the day, 
I'm not happy. Me, I'm happy because I live my life in like a series of chapters and and I get to like fully commit myself to that period and then get to reinvent myself all over again. So I'll have all of these life experiences. I don't want to feel like, oh, I was the CEO of this company for the past like 30 years. That's boring to me. You know, I get to come to work with a sideways hat and a free hug shirt on and do whatever I want to do because it's like, you know, you figure out what you do next. So yeah, success, it changes, it evolves. And to me, it's in each one of these little chapters that I've got to experience along the way. Your story, uh, just to kind of loop it back around to growing up, it kind of reminds me of the book, speaking of chapters, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But I want to kind of reinterpret those symbols. And, you know, I feel like the lion obviously is is courage and strength. The witch is the need of the time, the sort of darkness that you that you detect. And the wardrobe is the unknown, right? It'd be the willingness yeah. to go into the unknown and and, and allow allow your purpose to really be revealed to you instead of you actively seeking out a life purpose. It's just, yeah. no, you just go into the, you recognize the need, you go into the unknown, you, you need the strength to do that. And then as you say, every seven years, you know, your purpose evolves yeah. and it's never really about trying to force anything. It's just about use me for my gifts and my talents and my maturity and where I am right now in my mm. life. And so I just want to acknowledge you, man, for your strength and Thank for you. your willingness to go into the unknown and to set these huge, massive goals and to literally run into the chaos, Yeah, you yeah. know, that everyone else is running away from and to hold space for peace and understanding to come through the most unlikely candidates and yeah. that's no small feat and it's inspiring to me and and i think anyone who listens to this conversation is going to leave it a changed person and, and maybe even more inspired to go into the unknown more in their own life so yeah. thank you man for being generous enough to come back on oh, to no another worries. podcast and share your story yet again <laughs> yeah. no, no this was this was awesome and you know anytime you get to share your story. There's always like something new that the yeah. person that you're speaking to kind of pulls out of you, but also how you summed it up in the end. I never really thought of it like that with the lion, the witch and the wardrobe that that's, that's really what it is. You know, you've yeah. got like this, this good that you're standing on one side in your life, but then there's this kind of darkness. that's a little scary, you know, but then that wardrobe is the going into the unknown and saying, whatever happens on this side is what it's going to be. And I'll figure yeah. it out when I get there. And yeah. that's really special that you were able to sum it up to that. And yeah, I got to start reading that book to my kids for sure. Yeah. And that's what this podcast is about, is about going into the nuances of the story, not just the highlights. And and so thank you for for being so transparent and vulnerable. And I look forward to crossing paths again soon, man. It's been yeah. too long. It's been Absolutely. way, way, way too long. Are you back on the road yet or what's going uh, I just on? left. Yeah, I just finished my last gig for the year uh, Friday. And then, okay. yeah, next year, I'll probably continue the speaking thing for a little bit longer because I do enjoy that, like speaking at, at the colleges as I'm trying to figure out what's going to be my next main thing. And so we'll see what 40 has in store for me. 
Oh man, well, you know, there's another presidential race coming up soon. Oh so. yeah, <laughs> no, I'm good on that. I gave that a run in my life, and yeah, no, it's, uh, that's not for me, man. <laughs> All right, brother. Well, uh, appreciate you, man. Love you. No problem. And um, you, man. I look right. forward to seeing you. Thank you for tuning into my interview with Ken Nwadike Jr. To get more information about Ken and his work, I suggest following him on social media at freehugsproject.tv as well as at Ken Nwadike Jr. That's K-E-N-N-W-A-D-I-K-E-J-R. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. Speaking of lightwatkins.com, while you're there, you'll see that my recent book, Knowing Where to Look, is available in all versions, Kindle, hardcover, and audio, which is read by yours truly, and it comes with bonus commentary. You can also get information on my Happiness Insiders community, which is where you'll find the 108-day meditation challenge. And I'm pretty certain that being a part of that community will change your life from the inside out. So if you're ready to take your inner work to the next level, go to thehappinessinsiders.com to get more information and start your free trial. Finally, if you can subscribe and leave a rating or review for this podcast, that would be the best way to help share these conversations. It only takes about 10 seconds to rate it. Just look at your screen, go to the Apple podcast app, click on the name of this podcast, which is at the end of the tunnel, scroll down past the previous episodes, and you'll see five blank stars and just click the star on the far right and you've left a rating. Thank you in advance for that. Make sure you are subscribed so you're notified about the next story from the end of the tunnel. And until then, as always, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.